and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. If you were in need, from whom would it embarrass you most to receive mercy? If you saw someone in need, to whom would it humble you most to help? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Imago Dei with this sermon entitled Image Bearing in Our Neighbor, Becoming a People of Mercy, which covers Luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 37, Leviticus 19.18, and Deuteronomy 6.5. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're continuing in our series Imago Day, and today I want to lead us in uh, hopefully becoming a little bit more, um, not that the last messages that we've been doing, the previous messages, haven't been practical. Uh, certainly in all of theology, as we try to shape things, there's always practical implications, but we're moving into the part of our series, as we did last week, where we begin to hopefully apply a little bit more practically to day-to-day life. What does it look like to image God? as we are in this process of being restored. If you're a follower of Christ, we are in this, we've been redeemed by his blood, and so what is he doing? Uh, He's restoring us. He's renewing us, making us more and more into the image of Jesus. You know, I think about this. I think about um, when I was growing up, um, I watched my dad in everything that he did. This is what happens with little boys and little girls is they watch their parents, but there's probably something a little bit unique about a little boy and his dad. You watch everything that he does and you image him, so to speak. You want to do it exactly like he does it. Somehow time has been a blur and uh, I'm that dad now. And my kids, even though they're getting older, I notice them imaging me, watching me. Sometimes they don't know that I know that they're watching me, but I can feel their eyes. I know that they are. One of the things I remember wanting to do exactly like my dad is I wanted to drive exactly like he drove. And right now he watches these every week. He is cringing because he remembers how he has driven over the years. But I did. I wanted, to, I wanted to hold the steering wheel exactly like he held it. I thought my dad drove. He was so cool. He had the hand up on the top. Sometimes it was just a you know, little thing, just the thumb and finger, pointer finger right here, just on the bottom. Sometimes it was just one on the bottom. And I thought, wow, he only needs two fingers to control this vehicle. This, he is the best. Nobody can drive a car like my dad. So that's how I drive. And now my oldest is driving. And it was my job for the last year to teach him how to drive. Rachel and I negotiated. She says, I'm out. That's your job. I said, okay. So as I trained my son how to drive, I kept saying over and over and over again, two hands on the wheel, two hands on the wheel, until finally one day, what do you think he said to me? That's not how you drive. And I didn't have much of a comeback. You're right. But my only comeback is, but I've been driving for 25 years, son. You have not. You've only been driving for a few weeks. But still, he had me. 
because he's wanting to image me just like I wanted to image my dad. Now, here's the thing. In the fallen creation that we are, and as we've talked about this in previous weeks, if you're jumping into this series now, go back and listen to the previous sermons as we kind of laid out for you the five-pillar gospel that we were created in the image of God, holy and completely good uh, and perfect and in perfect union with him, but that the fall of mankind into sin occurred. And when that happened, the image of God within all of us was marred deeply within us to where we still image him in the sense of their uh, structurally and who we are as humans and our bodies and our intellect, things like that. But from a spiritual reality, we are completely dead and broken. And in our sinful nature that we now have inherited from Adam, from the fall, we are a people who do not image God to his glory. But there's good news. The good news is that there's one who came who did image him perfectly in our place. There is one who did do everything perfectly in word and deed and will and in every single way. And then he stood in our place and received upon us the just punishment that we deserve because of our sin. And the only one who ever walked the face of the earth who didn't deserve that took the full just wrath of God upon himself so that through him we might too receive forgiveness of our sins through his shed blood. His name is Jesus. And in this Jesus, he rose from the dead, defeating the penalty of sin once and for all, so that through faith in him, we too might live, be made new. Yes, eternally, which is our great hope, but even now, that's called redemption. It's the third pillar of that gospel that we proclaim. And then the next two pillars, the the pillars of restoration and consummation, are kind of the outworking of redemption to where what God is doing in followers of Christ now is he is restoring us to image him again. And the good news is in our fallen sinful nature, when my son images me, he picks up the good and the bad. But when we image our Father in heaven redeemed by the blood of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, being made new bit by bit by him, we only pick up the good. Why? Because our God is holy and completely good. And so we begin to image him in his character. And his character is this vast array of all the things that make God God. All of his beauty. And one of the things that we're going to zoom in on today is his character demonstrated by his mercy. That he is a God of mercy. And that if we are going to be a people redeemed by him, being restored by him, back into his image bearers, then we are a people that image him in his mercy. I want to teach through a passage this morning that we've actually taught through twice pretty recently. Back in 2016, during our Young Leader series, Dr. Kenan Vaughn, who's a pastor in Memphis, came and taught an incredible sermon on this passage. Then two summers ago, in 2018, I taught on this passage, and then here we are again. And so I think... um, 
as God is leading us, what I think God's prompting us to do is to come back to this passage, maybe on an every two year rotation. And here's why, here's why I think this is so important to keep digging into this passage. It's because it shows us in a profound way the heart of our God is merciful. And it shows us in a profound way what is to be the heart of his people is merciful. Becoming a people of mercy because we image a God of mercy. It's the passage of the Good Samaritan. Please do something with me here. You just, some of you just heard that and, and go, all right, this is my time to pull out my phone, make my checklist for the week, because I've heard this passage preached so many times. Would you not do that? Would you pray even now, if that's your temptation, would you stop and pray even now, God, help me to engage in your word this morning and give me fresh ears and a soft heart to hear what you would want me to hear this morning. So let me pray briefly, and then we're going to read it. Father, would you bless the reading of your word? And would you press it deep into our hearts and our minds? We ask for your glory. Amen. In this passage, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see, as, as I read through this, and then I'll break it down for us, you're going to see two ordinary questions. You're going to see two extraordinary answers. And then you're going to see two critical applications. Two ordinary questions, two extraordinary answers, and two critical applications. Let's read it together. Verse 25 of Luke chapter 10 says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to him and to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, Rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, this is Jesus, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, with this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, Jesus asks this question. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Two ordinary questions, two extraordinary answers, two critical applications. If you look in the text, the first ordinary question is right there off the bat in verse 25. It says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the reason that I say that this is an ordinary question is because this is, uh, this is our natural, common to mankind way that we go about religion. This is what we think is the, is the bedrock issue. What must I do? If there is a God, if there is this one who created us to know him, if there is this one who is all-knowing, omnipresent, if there is this one who is magnificent beyond our wildest imaginations, who did inconceivably to us present himself to us in such a way that we might not just know about him, but know him intimately, if there is an opportunity for right relationship with this transcendent being, then there must be something that I have to do to get in good graces with him. There must be something that we do to, to make things right because inherently deep within us, we have this, uh, this intuitive feeling, this, this natural recognition that we're not God. And so that if there is a God, then, then we got to make something happen here if he's knowable. And so the world is full. The world is full of religious structures and ideologies that are centered on that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This question, this very ordinary question to man is the very issue in which Christianity distinguishes itself. Jesus distinguishes himself as unique and different from any other belief system in the world that's ever existed. Because at the base level, when you peel back the onion layers of every religious system, it always comes down to answering this question, what must I do? And the answer for every other religious structure is, here's what you have to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And it becomes nothing more than a lifestyle committed to religious performance in hopes that it's good enough. But Jesus shows up onto the scene and he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament that promised that there would be one coming, the scriptures all leading up before him, that promised that there would be one who would come, who would take upon himself the duty that we feel. See, Jesus, the ordinary question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus points to something in his extraordinary answer. The first extraordinary answer is verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Isn't it interesting that Jesus just didn't give him the answer? Which is the answer, by the way, the, the quick, simple answer is, well, uh, 
Mr. Lawyer, you don't do anything. I'm going to do it on your behalf. And the great news of the gospel of grace is that you believe upon me as your substitute. And then, and then I will then uh, make you right with God because you can't. There's never enough that you could ever do. I will make you right with God and then I will put inside of you my very nature and I will begin to make you new and right and restore you so that you begin to be again what you were created to be. That's the answer, but that's not what Jesus says here. Now that's said in all throughout the rest of scripture, but what Jesus does is he actually answers with a question that gets right to the heart of this man's predicament. And what is this man's predicament? What is his problem? His problem is that he's an expert in the Jewish religious law. And his problem is that he has actually been deceived uh, in himself to believe that he keeps the law perfectly. And so he is believing that he can perform to the extent that God says, I am pleased with you. He does what's called a uh, an answer to the heart of the man. Argumentum ad hominem. To the heart of the man to say, you're an expert in the law, let me give you the law. So the lawyer responds correctly. He says, he quotes uh, Leviticus 18, 19, and he, or 19, 18, and he, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5, which is the summation of the law of the whole Old Testament Law, Mosaic law, which is to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this man, this expert in the law, should have responded like Paul tells us in Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20 tells us this, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But do you see how this man responds? He actually thinks that he's loving the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Again, Jesus is saying, look, if, if you can do that, if you can do that perfectly without sin, not just in action, not just in word, but in motive and purity of heart, then yes, of course, you will have eternal life because that will mean that you're sinless. But the whole point of the law is twofold, to show us the purity and the holiness of the character of God and then to show us how profoundly we fall short of that. That we are not a people who could ever love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here comes the second ordinary question from the lawyer. He doesn't even say anything about the first part of the summation of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't even address that, which seems to indicate, imply here, that he thinks he's doing that. The self-righteousness in this man is off the charts. And so he asks a second ordinary question. And it pertains to the second part of the summation of the law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture says, 
Seeking to justify himself, he asked this very ordinary question, well, who is my neighbor? And the reason I say that's an ordinary question, because again, in the very nature of who we are, in our sinful nature, we want to ask the very same question. We want to justify ourselves. We want to be given a reason from God that he approves of the way in which we categorize people to be uh, worthy of our love and our mercy and our compassion and our grace or unworthy of our love and our mercy and compassion and grace. And so we want to ask questions that justify our motives, our actions, our words, so that we can say, ah, okay, I'm doing good. Who is my neighbor? You see, there was a debate in this day among Jews. Listen to this. I, I got to read this to you. This was fascinating. I, I came across this this week. Uh, during that time, Jews uh, argued about how to interpret Leviticus 19.18, which is the verse that says, love your neighbor as yourself, that Jesus is quoting, or this man is even quoting. Some Jews had interpreted this verse to say, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Other Jews said that the right interpretation was to love your neighbor, the Israelite. That's who your neighbor is, just your Israelite, just the, just the common Israelite. The Pharisees, which was a Jewish sect, said that they narrowed it down even more to say, love your neighbor, the Pharisee. It's just the Pharisee. And the Qumran people, which is another sect of Judaism, were declaring that anyone who didn't adhere to their strict version of Judaism was, quote, a son of darkness and should be hated. So there was all this kind of debate. And so that's why this man is asking that question. Well, well Jesus, wise teacher, rabbi, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with the second extraordinary answer that is absolutely unexpected and jaw-dropping. He tells his story, and if you want to dive into the story, I would say uh, go back, and we have all of our sermons recorded on our website. And what I taught two years ago, what Dr. Ken and Vaughn taught four years ago, we dive in deeper into what's going on in the, in the story bit by bit. But here's the summation of the story. Many of you know it well. Uh, a man is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And the reason the down is because of the 4,000 foot drop in elevation between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's, it's along this road that back then uh, they knew it was commonly called the, the path of blood. It was a place where robbers often camped out because they knew that this was a narrow passageway through desert land and hills that uh, they could have easy prey. And so you, it was wise for you to never travel alone because of that very reason. But in this story, this man is traveling alone and he falls into the hands of robbers. The Greek text gives us indication that the reason he fell into robbers is because he had no escape. The word is actually he was surrounded by robbers and they beat him to a pulp, left him half dead on the road and took everything that he had. And so the story hangs in the balance of what's going to happen to this man. And so Jesus says, well, there's one who comes along and, and it's a priest. Now the priest of the day were pastors. They were to be the holiest of people. They were to be the ones that if one is going to enter into this story and be the hero, of course it will be the priest. And the priest, it says, saw him. He didn't just happen to not see him. He saw him and he passed by on the other side of the road. And there's many 
the reasons as to why a priest might do that. It has to do with cleansing laws. It has to do with all kinds of things that religiosity would compel him to say, that man is not worthy of my mercy. Well, then a second man comes along, and it's a Levite, and a Levite is a priest in training. So maybe the Levite hasn't been so steeped in religiosity yet that he doesn't see the need of this man who's laying half dead in a ditch on the side of the road. But the Levite does exactly what the priest does, and he passes by on the other side of the road. And then there's this third character. And if you're listening to Jesus tell this story, and if you look in the context of the passage, it's Jewish people who are listening. It's Pharisees and others who are listening to him tell this passage, this story. And he says, but a Samaritan. And everyone goes, no. Oh, please don't make him the hero. Because the cultural context, and I'll just leave it at this for now, is that they hated one another. And it was a deep, deep deep hatred. And it goes back at this time, it would have gone back over 700 years because the origins of their hatred with one another went back to when the Northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria and the capital of the Northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. And what the Assyrian uh, kingdom did is once they came in and they dispersed the Northern, the 10 tribes of North Israel and the Northern kingdom, what they did is they brought in all these pagan religions and people to intermarry and breed out the Jews. And so the southern kingdom, the two tribes of Israel that were left, it was called Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, looked upon the northern kingdom that was now uh, intermarried and intermingled with all of these foreigners, with all of these pagans. They looked upon them as half-breeds. And they hated them. They hated him so much that when the Pharisees were most disgusted with Jesus in John chapter 8, you know what they called him? A demon-possessed Samaritan. If being called a Samaritan wasn't enough, demon-possessed Samaritan in their mind was the worst of the worst. And this Samaritan comes along. And he's on a path somewhere, he's on a journey somewhere, but he breaks off his plans. He interrupts his schedule and he uses his time and his resources to intentionally and mercifully go to this man, half dead in a ditch, who is his enemy and bring care, compassion, and mercy. If there was ever two people groups that wanted to label more than love, that wanted to categorize more than care. It was the Samaritans and the Jews. Nothing has changed in human history, by the way, with the way that we operate out of our sinful nature. I've heard some people say we are living in a day and time where nothing has been more polarized. We are living in, in a day and time where all anyone wants to do is categorize, label, dismiss, vilify, condemn. And I hear that and I say, yeah, that may be so, at least in America, but this is nothing new under the sun. 
This is exactly what Jesus was dealing with when he showed up in first century Israel. He was dealing with two groups of people who did nothing more than categorize, label, vilify, dismiss, and condemn one another, and then ask the question, who is my neighbor, so that God might very well justify them in their hatred of that person, and they feel like, yes, I get to be this way because they are my enemy. And in this one simple story, this one little story, Jesus does a work of teaching to the heart of mankind that has pierced our hearts now for over 2,000 years because what he says and the point of this parable is that you never have a reason whatsoever to not extend mercy to anyone made in the image of God, ever. I don't care if they're your enemy politically. I don't care if you don't understand one logical reason as to why they believe what they believe, why they vote the way that they vote, why they act the way that they act. You do not have permission from the God of the universe to vilify them, separate them, categorize them, label them, dismiss them, walk by on the other side of the road. What you do, what you do is you stop and you move towards them with the mercy of Jesus. Because here's, please don't miss this. The hero in the story that we are to identify with is not the Samaritan. It's not, oh, that I could just be like this Samaritan in the story. The hero in the story is Jesus. Because he's the true and better Samaritan. What did Jesus do? Ephesians 2 tells me that I'm not just half dead on the side of the road. I am dead. I am dead in the trespasses and sins in which I once walked, following the way of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. I am, I am a vessel of the wrath of God. But Jesus, being rich in mercy and with the great love with which he has loved me, has made me alive. By grace we have been saved. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one should boast. What did Jesus do? Jesus stopped. He descended. He condescended from heaven. He interrupted his schedule. He interrupted whatever plan he might have. And he, he took upon a servant, himself a servant of God, and became in the likeness of man. What did he do? He came over and he bound my wounds. And he didn't just pour oil and wine and vinegar into my wounds. He poured his blood. And in his blood, my wounds are healed. And he didn't just take me as the Samaritan did in the story and put me on his back and carry me to uh, some animal and throw me over the animal so that he could then walk me to an inn. What Jesus did is he, 
He threw me on his lacerated back, so to speak, and he didn't put me onto a donkey. He put me into the warm and good embrace of the Father. And he didn't say to an innkeeper, take care of him no matter what it costs. I will pay the debt until I come back. He said to the Father, put all the debt of this one on me and keep him in your loving arms until I come back because I will come back. And until I do, here's the two critical applications. Who is the neighbor? It's the one who showed mercy. So until I do, show mercy as one who has received mercy and do likewise until I return. Oftentimes, I know for me, I am a person who wants to justify myself. I am a person who wants to know all the reasons as to why I should not be merciful. But listen to the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, just a few chapters previous, Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Sinners being, we're all sinners. What Jesus is saying is those who the Jews look at and say that those are sinners, not us. And if you lend to those who among you, uh, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We want to image our Father. Who is our Father? He's merciful. The Bible only gives us two categories, primary categories to think about people in. And it's not all the categories of our culture. The two primary categories are this. Are they made in the image of God? And are they in Christ or not in Christ? If they're made in the image of God, which is every person on the face of the earth, then I am to move towards them with the same mercy that Jesus has moved towards me. And if they don't know Jesus, they have not believed upon him as their Lord and their Savior, then I am to share the gospel with them in word and in deed. Those are the two categories. Are we people who want to label? Or are we people who want to love? Let's image our Father who is merciful. Father, would you, would you lead us in your way would you grant us the ability through your Holy Spirit to image you, O Christ, the merciful one, 
Father, we confess to you that we feel within us. I, I certainly do. I feel within me the, the desire that is just right there in line with the lawyer. I want to put you to the test and I want to justify myself. But, oh, Jesus, would you continue to lead me and lead all of us back to the reality that you are the merciful one and you have, you have been so merciful with me. And, oh, God, as we dwell upon this gospel of mercy and grace, would you make us a people of mercy? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.